Do you find yourself breaking out, at least privately, in unrestrained worship over the grandeur of God's character and the work of His salvation? How often do you become so aware of the bottomless depths of divine riches, of God's wisdom and, and His knowledge that your heart just overflows with wonder and praise? Unfortunately, few believers really identify with this level of praise in private or in public. In fact, sometimes you can look around even in our own church and look at believers during the time of singing and nothing's happening. In fact, some of you look like you're having a gallbladder attack. There's something wrong. Others who are part of the Christian church really have no appetite for the Word of God. They can sit for a movie for three hours, but they can't sit for 50 minutes for an exposition of the Word. It's amazing. If this describes you, perhaps what you will hear today will bring clarity, will bring conviction to your heart, because certainly God desires this level of worship in the very core of your being. There is nothing mystical about developing a heart of praise. It's really quite simple. The more you love the God of the Word, the more you will love the Word of God. And this will lead to a deeper understanding of God's character and His gracious plan of redemption. And it will cause you to automatically burst forth in praise in your heart. Said differently, if you have a low view of God, a superficial love for Him, He will not be your greatest joy. He will not be your satisfaction in life. And if you feed on the junk food of this world and you ruin your appetite for God's revelation of Himself, the result is going to be that you'll have no appetite for His Word. You will not, therefore, grasp the marvels of redemption, the marvels of His riches, His wisdom, His knowledge, His grace. And moreover, what you will end up having, having is an appetite for things that are other than God. And so these types of doxologies are going to be foreign to you. Rather than having a heart filled with wonder and praise, you're going to have a heart filled with worldliness and pride. You'll be ruled by your flesh, not by the Spirit who is quenched and grieved in your life. So, dear Christian, please hear this as we prepare our hearts to understand this text this morning. The greatest measure of spiritual maturity is not religious activity. It's not your service for Christ necessarily. Not your church attendance. The greatest measure of spiritual maturity is a heart that habitually and spontaneously erupts in exuberant praise over the grandeur of God's character and the glory of His marvelous plan of redemption. I call it a secret devotion to God that results in doxologies of praise within the heart, a bursting forth in song. And dear friends, there is nothing that brings more delight to God than a gracious soul expressing and celebrating the infinite perfections of His nature and just the unfathomable benefits of His grace. We see this, for example, in the song of Moses and the sons of Israel after God had parted the sea and delivered them from Pharaoh's charioteers. In Exodus 15, 1, they say, I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider He has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will extol Him. Dear friend, when you truly grasp God's deliverance in your life, when you truly get a hold of His mercy, what He has given to you, your soul will automatically burst forth in fervent doxology. We've been created for this very thing. And this is precisely what is happening here 
with the Apostle Paul in this section of Scripture. Paul can't contain himself any longer. He just can't hold it in any longer. For 11 chapters now, he has been explaining the astonishing doctrines of salvation, especially justification by faith. Throughout his inspired revelation of these truths, we, we've seen him repeatedly just get lost in, in adoration and, and awe of God's sovereign grace, of which he himself is a product. The emphasis of his whole argument is the covenant faithfulness of God, especially as it relates to God's beloved enemy, his kinsman, ethnic national Israel. We've seen him interpret and reinterpret the covenant history of Israel from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to Moses and the Exodus. In Romans 9, he speaks of Israel's election. In Romans 10, Israel's defection. Here in Romans 11, Israel's salvation, which will ultimately fulfill God's purpose in choosing them in the first place. As God declared through His servant Jeremiah, chapter 13, verse 11, that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise, and for glory. He has revealed to us that Israel's salvation, Israel's redemption is a magnificent demonstration of God's sovereign grace that ultimately brings glory to His name. This is His purpose in redeeming Israel. As the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 43, verse 21, the people, Israel, whom I formed for myself will one day declare my praise. So Paul can't contain himself any longer. He's been explaining the interrelatedness of Jews and, and Gentiles in God's plan of salvation. He has revealed the mystery of Israel's partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then all Israel is going to be saved. We can't even imagine how exciting this must have been for him. Because remember, in chapter 9, verse 2, he said, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. So naturally, the only reasonable response here is for him to break out with this great doxology. Now, let's look closely at what the Holy Spirit inspires him to say. I hope that you received a handout. If you didn't, I believe we have it on the screen here. This, is a, this doxology is a nine-line poem. Uh, think of two bookends consisting of three members each, both of which encloses a middle section consisting of three double lines. The first bookend has three members to it, riches, wisdom, and knowledge. And then on the other side, the second bookend has three members, from him, through him, and to him. And then sandwiched in between the two bookends is the three lines in verses 34 and 35 that I'll explain to you, which really comment in reverse order on the first three characteristics of God that's identified in the opening line here in verse 33. And each opening line contains a parallel clause that even further describes the attribute that is praised in the preceding line. There's like an ascending praise here. And in the middle of these two bookends, as we will see, he has formulated some rhetorical questions that will give great glory to God. Now, in terms of an outline, it's really quite simple. Number one, we're going to look at the inexhaustible depths of God's character in verses 33 through 35. And then secondly, the infinite glory of God's purpose. Now, frankly, we will only be able to mine those nuggets of truth that are closest to the surface here. Our lack of time and comprehension will not allow us to really excavate beyond the surface, but even with the wealth that we can accumulate in our short time together here this morning, as we just look at the surface here of divine revelation, we're going to be able to, to mine valuable resources, valuable jewels beyond a king's ransom. 
In fact, it was for this reason that David says in Psalm 119, 127, I love thy commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. That's how he saw Scripture. I hope that's how you see Scripture. I hope you have come here with such a love, with such a commitment to the Word of God that you have prepared your hearts and you see the value of this more than man's infatuation with the most precious metal on earth. So let's look at the inexhaustible depths of God's character. Notice verse 33. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches. The term riches refers to wealth, the abundant resources. And in verse 36, Paul will affirm that everything is from Him. From Him are all things. He is the self-existent Creator and Sustainer of all things. He is infinite in wealth and resources. There is no limit to what He could create if He wanted to create even more. You realize that? Out of all that He has created, if He wanted to do this over again an infinite number of times, He could do it. Moreover, His infinite wealth is seen in His attributes, His glorious perfections. Now, in order to even remotely understand this concept of the depth of God's riches, we must understand the holiness of God. You will recall that the cherubim that hover around God's throne cover their face as they attend to His wishes, and they call Him holy, holy, holy. The term holy means to be set apart. Not only from evil and sin, but even more importantly, you must understand that God is absolutely set apart from our nature. He has a nature that we cannot comprehend. To put it very simply, God is transcendent. He is totally other. We have a little parakeet named Blue. And I often find myself looking at Blue, and our eyes meet, and I don't have a clue what he's thinking. And he looks up at me, and he doesn't have a clue what I'm thinking. I was thinking about this actually this morning. He didn't know that I've been reviewing the Apostle Paul's great doxology on the glory of God while I was listening to a Chopin nocturne that I used to play. He has no idea anything about me. Now multiply that with an inf inf infinite number. And that's what we are, looking up at God. All we know is what He has revealed to us in His Word and in His creation. He is, according to Isaiah 57.15, the high and exalted One who lives forever, whose name is holy, who dwells on a high and holy place. Beloved, holiness cannot be compared to anything we know because all we know is unholy. We think in terms of finite time and space. We think in terms of possessing things, that things belong to us, or, or we have certain resources. But God is the source of everything that exists. Oh, the depth of His riches. There is no limit to what He can create. He is also the source of our spiritual wealth. Indeed, we are, according to Ephesians 1, the recipients of the riches of His grace. Ephesians 3.16 tells us that we are strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man according to the riches of His glory. Beloved, we cannot comprehend the depth of His riches. But this aspect of His nature is included in the attribute of His holiness, the one that He used to describe Himself the most in Scripture. Holiness is the all-encompassing attribute of God. It portrays His consummate perfection, His majesty, His glory, the source of all riches, material and spiritual. Like no other attribute that He used to describe Himself, His holiness stands alone as the defining characteristic of His person. It alone is the 
quintessential summation of all of His attributes. He tells us in His Word that He is the great I Am in Exodus 3. The One who has life intrinsic to Himself and in Himself. And meaning, He is the utterly self-existent God. He is eternal, unchanging. There are no riches, there are no resources in existence that did not come from Him. Therefore, Paul says at the end of this doxology that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. One of the most lofty descriptions of the majesty of God in all of Scripture is recorded in Moses' doxology in Exodus 15, verse 11. He says, Who is like Thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like Thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Well, it is therefore fitting that Paul begins his paean of praise by saying, Oh, the depth of the riches. Oh, the limitless, boundless reservoir of your resources. And to give even further praise to this attribute, I want you to notice that Paul asks a rhetorical question that corresponds to this in verse 35. He says, Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? Well, the answer is obvious. No one. This is quoting Job 41.11 where we read, Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Think about it. To whom is God indebted? No one. We are indebted to Him. And dear Christian, this should be so astonishing to you. This should be so humbling that you just want to fall on your face in adoration and praise. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, that you through His poverty might become rich. Beloved, the impoverishment of Christ referred to there had nothing to do with his, with his economic or material condition. But it had everything to do with His unimaginable condescension in His incarnation. That the eternal God had become man so that we could enjoy the everlasting riches of eternal life. And that's why Paul said later on in 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks be to God for what? His indescribable gift. The lyrics of Charles Wesley's great hymn comes to mind. Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Now, he goes on to elaborate on two distinct aspects of God's riches that emerge from the context of Paul's revelation concerning the mystery of, of God's saving purposes, all these things that... that, that that he has written in the previous chapters, especially as it relates to his beloved, God's beloved enemy, Israel. And he speaks, therefore, of his wisdom and God's knowledge. And I've defined wisdom as God's ability to determine the highest goal to be attained and then select the best means to accomplish it. And, of course, his goal is to bring glory to himself. Again, at the end of the doxology, Paul says to him, be the glory forever. Now, that's different than God's knowledge. God's knowledge pertains to, to His omniscience, His infinite ability to understand and to know all things knowable, past, present, and future. Think of knowledge as the apprehension or the intuitive understanding of a thing, and wisdom is the appointing or the ordering of all things. We see the distinction between wisdom and knowledge, for example, in the gifts that the Spirit gives to some. 1 Corinthians 12:8, we read, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the Spirit. That word of wisdom is the ability to understand God's Word and, and His will, and then to skillfully apply that understanding to life. And... That gift of knowledge is the ability to understand and 
and speak the meaning of God's revealed truth with insight into the mysteries of His Word that cannot be known apart from Scripture. Now I want you to notice as he goes on here, he is astonished, first of all, with the depth of God's wisdom. Not only the depth of His riches, but he splits off of that and speaks of God's wisdom in verse 33. Now I want to ask you a question. What basis would we have for our faith and our hope in God if He were not all-wise? If He had not, in eternity past, determined the highest goal to be attained, namely to bring Him glory, and then selected the best means to accomplish that end, what hope would we have? It's amazing to me to think that in His wisdom, God ordained to allow evil to enter His perfect universe. In wisdom, He ordained to allow the serpent to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden. In wisdom, He set into motion His plan for Satan to bruise Christ on the heel at Calvary and for, for Christ to make that fatal blow upon Satan and bruise him on the head and gain the final triumph. In wisdom, God predetermined a purpose for His chosen people, Israel, to play in His redemptive plan, to provide the world with a living illustration of His mercy and His love and His grace, and to demonstrate that He alone is God. And in wisdom, He made a covenant with Abraham and his physical and spiritual descendants. In wisdom, he judicially hardened the hearts of many Israelites that Gentiles might be grafted into the root of covenantal blessing. In wisdom, he chose to save some, but not all. In wisdom, he is going to judge the nations. In wisdom, he is going to establish his glorious kingdom on earth. That messianic kingdom the consummating bridge between human history and the eternal state. And in perfect, absolute wisdom, God seizes every opportunity to accomplish His wise plan that He designed. All His ways are perfect. If you notice that all of His ways have a certain decorum to them, they are all orderly, all His resolves are guided by the reason and counsel of His own infinite understanding of how to attain that perfect goal of His glory throughout redemptive history. Moses said in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, His work is perfect, for all His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. And in Proverbs 3, verse 19, we read, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, He established the heavens. You realize that God's sovereignty is actually an outworking of His perfect wisdom. Even as it relates to your salvation. As it relates to my salvation. Paul spoke of this in Ephesians 1, verse 11. As believers, he says, we have been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. So we are absolutely awed by His wisdom. We have to stand in silence before His plan. For example, we cannot comprehend why He saves some, but not all. I have no understanding of why He would do that. We cannot see the justice in allowing the wicked to prosper and the godly to suffer. But He wants us to relax knowing that all of these things are fruits of unerring righteousness ordered by an all-wise God. God never makes mistakes. Aren't you thankful for that? There's nothing that can frustrate His plan. 
Isaiah 55, verse 11, he says, So shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Likewise, in Isaiah 14, verse 24, and also in verse 27, we read, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for His stretched out hand, who can turn it back? Beloved, whatever your lot in life Wherever you're at right now, know this. What you are experiencing is yours by the hand of an all-wise God who has called you to submit to His Lordship for your good and for His glory. Paul summarizes all of this later on at the end of Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Once again, he can't contain himself, so he just bursts forth. And he says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the Scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith to the only... What's the word? Wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Now, because of the depths of divine wisdom, Paul asks the rhetorical question that corresponds to this attribute in verse 34 at the end. He says, who became his counselor? The answer is, no one. This is quoted from Isaiah 40, verse 13. There we read, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as His Counselor has informed Him. Verse 14 goes on to say, with whom did He consult? And who gave Him understanding? And who taught Him knowledge and informed Him of the way of understanding? Obviously, no one. It's interesting, isn't it? None of us are born wise. None of us are born with any knowledge. We have to attain these things. And some do a better job than others for various reasons. In Job 28.12 we read, Where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? And then I love how God answers this in verse 28. Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. And it is God who imparts that wisdom to us by His regenerating grace. But you must understand what the Apostle is referring to here. God is by nature boundless in wisdom and knowledge. And He has been from all eternity. God never turned to a counselor, never went to a teacher to gain wisdom. As Paul contemplates all that he's just written, he's just, he's just awestruck. He, he's just awestruck by the immeasurable perfections of God's wisdom. But notice, he's also astonished with yet a second attribute that flows from the wellspring of divine riches, and that is the knowledge of God. Now bear in mind, unlike wisdom that refers to the appointing and the ordering of things, knowledge pertains to God's omniscience, his infinite ability to understand and to know all things knowable, past, present, and future. To apprehend, to intuitively understand a thing. Psalm 147, verse 5. The psalmist says, Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Pretty well covers it, doesn't it? Dear Christian, this is a cause for great celebration. And that's exactly what the Apostle is doing here. I mean, think about it. God knows all things possible. Do you realize that He knew all things knowable about His creation before He created anything? You're going to have to stick with me here for a moment because this is stretching us as we think about these great truths. 
Let's talk about his knowledge. Think of it past, present, and future. He knows all things past as if they were happening right now in the present. In fact, there is nothing necessarily past or future with him because he is the eternal God that transcends time and space. Everything for him is present. But in order for us to understand, of course, he knows all things past. In fact, God used this as an argument to elevate his preeminence over the pagan idols in Isaiah 41, verse 22. There he says, Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome, or announce to us what is coming. Obviously, no one, no idol can do that. And because God knows all things past, He knows the sins of all men. Many passages speak to this. Job 14, verse 17, we read, My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and thou dost wrap up my iniquity. We read in Scripture that God is able to bring to men's minds the remembrance of their past sins to bring conviction. And he has to be able to do this in order to perfectly judge all men someday. But he also knows all things present. So many passages that speak to this. Psalm 147, beginning in verse 4, we read, He counts the number of the stars. Did you hear what I just said? He counts the numbers, the number of the stars. Not only that, he gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Well, you might ask, how many stars are there? (laughs) We don't really know, but I did some research. And the current count in the observable universe is 300 sextillion. I'm not sure how much that is, but it's probably somewhere around the national debt. You know? I mean, that's just inconceivable, isn't it? Not only does he know them all by number, but he's got names for all of them. He knows all things present. He knows every intimate detail of all of his creatures. Every little creature. Psalm 50, verse 11, I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field. Matthew 10, verse 30, Jesus said, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are His. He also knows those who are not His. In the day of judgment, according to Matthew 7.24, He will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from Me, you who practice lawlessness. Genesis 6.5, we read that, that the Lord knows every inclination of the hearts of men. In other words, He knows what their imaginations are. In Proverbs 5.21, we read, A man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. That should be sobering to each of us. Do you think there's anything you do that escapes his notice? 1 Corinthians 4.5, One day he will, quote, disclose the motives of men's hearts. Each man's praise will come to him from God. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1, we read, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou is an emphatic personal pronoun. It's written in such a way in the original language to say, You, yes, You. Or in other words, You alone dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. You alone dost understand my thought from afar. You alone dost scrutinize my path and my lying down and art intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You and You alone dost know it all. He says in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It it, it is too high. I cannot attain to it. He knows all things past and present. He also knows all things future. 
And I might say in kindness, but as forthrightly as I know how, only a fool would say otherwise. Let me tell you why. Think about it. Once, nothing existed but God. He knew nothing past because nothing was yet past. Nor was there, was there anything present because nothing existed save Himself, right? Therefore, everything He knew with respect to creation and with respect to history was all future. So, of course He knows the future. Because once the future only existed in the present. Obviously, He was not ignorant of what He was going to create. He was not ignorant of how His creation would operate in His wise plan. Why? Because He knew the future as if it had already occurred. His predictions in Scripture attest to His incomprehensible perfection. This is what separates the true God from the false gods. God foreknows all things, even those things that we would consider accidents, things that happen by chance, like the random arrow that struck and killed Ahab in 1 Kings 22:34. God foreknows the free and voluntary acts of man. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 11, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. Think about it. If the free acts of men were unknown to God, how in the world could He govern His universe? How could He predict the future in prophecy? On what basis could we possibly Believe Scripture. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Think about it. Not the minutest part of the universe could have come into being apart from His will, nor can anything occur apart from the decree of the One who, according to Acts 15.18, makes all things known from of old. Isaiah 46, verse 9, attests to this great attribute. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. You realize that even your days are numbered by God? Job 14, verse 5, it says, Man's days are determined, the number of his months is with thee, and his limits thou hast set so that he cannot pass. Beloved, if God were not omniscient, able to know the future as perfectly as he knows the things present and past, he would be constantly learning. Right? He would be constantly adapting. Therefore, he could not be immutable. Right? He'd always be having to change from imperfection to perfection as he acquires more knowledge. And nor could he be sovereign. He he couldn't possibly know the end from the beginning. He couldn't possibly orchestrate all things to accomplish what he decreed in eternity past. And so again, we would have no basis for our faith, no basis for our hope. God would have no knowledge whether or not things would work out the way that He planned. Think of the story of Joseph. If God didn't know the future, He would have been ignorant about what was going to happen to Joseph that he would be thrown into a pit, that he would be sold to the Egyptians. God would have had to have scrambled to see what was going on with with, with Potiphar and then Potiphar's wife and then the free will of, of, of Pharaoh and all that he did. All of that would have been a surprise to him and he'd have to be adapting all the time. If that were true, God's decrees and His sovereign will would be subject to the will of man. 
Beloved, that's not the God of the Bible. He would be unable to govern man and history by His providence and we would be without hope. But in truth, God knows His own decrees. He knows His will and must therefore know all things future in order to accomplish this. The precise fulfillment of His ancient prophecies testify to this. Now think about this from Paul's perspective. As we wrap this up this morning, (laughs) Paul is longing to see his kinsmen come to Christ. And he could look back over Scripture, the great theologian that he was, and he could realize that in the wisdom of God, he promised Abraham that his descendants would be vast like the number of the stars that they would be a great nation, that they would be His witness people, that they would be blessed above all the peoples of the earth, that the Messiah would come from Him, and so forth. He could look back at even later in Deuteronomy 4 and see where God, in His wisdom, promised to scatter Israel among the nations because of their sin. They would become few in number. Eventually, though, He would have compassion on them. Deuteronomy 4.31, For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers which He swore to them. And as God foreknew and foreordained all things, Paul could look and see that yes, indeed, as God said, they, they sinned. Then they were dispersed among the nations. Now, as God promised, they are beginning to return back again in their unbelief. And because God knows all things past, present, and future, Paul can rejoice knowing that God has promised that one day all Israel will be saved. So because of the depths of God's knowledge, Paul now asks the rhetorical question that corresponds to this attribute. In verse 34, he says, Who has known the mind of the Lord? The answer again is, no one. This question is quoted almost unchanged from the Septuagint version in Isaiah 40, verse 13, where we read, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or as His Counselor has informed Him? (laughs) Obviously, no one. Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, For who has known the mind of the Lord that He should instruct Him? And we're reminded by the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. The example of the parakeet comes to mind. He goes on to say, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Well, what's the response to this? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Verse 33b, he says, How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. The word judgments refers to His decisions. It is impossible for us to ever fully understand what God is doing apart from what He has told us. All of this is unfathomable. It comes from a Greek term, that speaks of footprints or tracks, animal tracks that cannot be traced. We are incapable of fully understanding what He's up to. He cannot be fully understood. And so so this is the astonishment and the adoration that erupts from the Apostle's heart concerning the inexhaustible depths of God's character. And then he closes with a final benediction A benediction of awe concerning, secondly, the infinite glory of God's purpose. Verse 36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Said differently, God is the originator. God is the sustainer and the goal of all things that exist, all things that He has created. Everything comes from Him. Everything is preserved by Him. And everything ends in Him. Beloved, this is why we want to be a God-centered church, not a man-centered church. Preaching a God-centered gospel, not a man-centered gospel. 
living God-centered lives, not man-centered lives. So for this reason, Paul ascribes to God not merely glory, but he says the glory, the supreme glory. And then what a fitting one-word conclusion. Amen. All of Paul's arguments and the explanations of God's plan of redemption, he says, oh, amen. With one word, he expresses his joyful confidence in the one true God. And thus ends the doctrinal portion of this epistle. To be followed by a very practical section, five chapters regarding the character and conduct of our lives, how we should live regarding these truths. Now, as we close, I want to challenge you, as always. Dear Christian, bring your life right now to this song of praise. Let it be to you a hymn of joyful confidence. Despite your sin, your sorrow, the deep mysteries of the circumstances of your life, know this, that an all-wise, an all-knowing, an all-powerful God is at work in you to conform you to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows everything about you. He is causing all things, as Paul says, to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And what's His purpose? To bring glory to Himself. That should be the center of gravity around which your life orbits. What a staggering promise. Because, because you are hidden in Christ, everything that happens to you, no matter how painful, no matter how confusing, is all part of the plan of an all-wise, good, loving, merciful, faithful God. And we can celebrate this. And I would ask you to ask yourself, Am I so astonished by a holy and righteous God that I find myself routinely lost in the wonder of His divine perfections? I find myself routinely lost in the glory of His grace for my life. Oh, I hope that's true for you. If not, you have a very low view of God and a very high view of self. So I would admonish you to grow up Get to know your God. You cannot praise a God you do not know. God promises in Jeremiah 29.14, You will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. Rest assured, dear friends, one day nothing will be able to restrain your praise. With the 24 elders described in Revelation 4 verse 10, we will join the ones who will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. And we will join them in saying, Worthy art Thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou didst create all things, and because of Thy will they existed and were created. Amen. Doesn't it make you want to sing? As I was studying this passage and calling out all of the things that I want to say that I don't have time to say, I found my heart going repeatedly to that great hymn, Praise Ye the Lord. Will you sing it with me? Praise Ye the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise Him, for He is Thy health and salvation. All ye who hear, brothers and sisters, draw near. Praise Him in glad adoration. Praise ye the Lord, who o'er all things so wondrously reigneth. Shelters thee under His wings, yea, so gently sustaineth. Hast thou not seen how thy desires e'er have been granted in what He ordaineth? 
Praise ye the Lord, who with marvelous wisdom hath made thee, decked thee with health, and with loving hand guided and stayed thee. How often grief hath not He brought thee relief, spreading His wings for to shade thee. Praise ye the Lord, O let all that is in me adore Him. All that hath life and breath come now with praises before Him. Let the Amen sound from His people again. Gladly for a we adore Him. Let the Amen sound from His people again. Gladly for a we adore Him. Father, we thank You for Your riches, for Your wisdom, for Your knowledge, for the grace that You have lavished upon us as Your people. We are such debtors to that grace. We praise You and we ask now that You will dismiss us with these great truths resonating within our heart. May we live out the praise that is in our hearts that others might see the transforming power of the Gospel. And Lord, if there is anyone within the sound of my voice that does not know You, O God, by Your grace, will You overwhelm them with conviction. May they see the sword of divine justice looming over their head. And Lord, will You cause them to run from that wrath and fall before the cross and cry out for the mercy that You will so quickly give. We commit that to Your sovereign purposes. Dismiss us now with Your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.